Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick and this is episode number 125 of the Mandolins of Beer podcast brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. How is everybody doing? Hope you've been having a fantastic week. My guest this week, it's a really fun one with Tony Williamson. I wanted to really uh, talk about Lloyd Lore and the, the man and the instrument and we had a really great conversation. Uh, Tony's a great guy. I think everybody will enjoy it. Um, I have a couple thank yous real quick. This is exciting. Uh, I got a package in the mail today um, from Chuck Thode. I hope I'm saying your last name properly, Chuck, but he's heard me talk about how I wish I would have gone to the Mandolin Symposium um, for all these years. And he mailed me uh, uh, an original first year 2004 Mandolin Symposium t-shirt. It is it is amazing. Thank you so much, Chuck. That What a nice gesture. Um, I really, really appreciate that. I'll post pictures on the Instagram of it. It's got a cool thing of Thiele and Dog and Mike Marshall on the front. So I just wanted to thank you so much, Chuck. That was super nice to get. And um, I also got a PayPal donation from Neil. Neil, I hope I'm saying your last name right. Lovinger, Lovinger. Um, I want to thank you for the donation. Again, if you want to support the podcast, you can do it. Um, you can send me a PayPal donation through um, PayPal, DanielPatrickMusic at Yahoo.com is the address. You can also go to Patreon, Patreon.com slash beer, and you can support it with a monthly amount as well. And you can save 10% for doing it for the year. The uh, Patreon, the next Mandolins of Beer Patreon hang is going to be Tuesday, March 1st, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So I'll be sending out the link for that to all the patrons. Um, I'm also extremely excited to announce this next piece of information. Um, I've got a brand new sponsor, and this one is really a full circle one for me, and it's Elderly Instruments in East Lansing, Michigan. And they're celebrating their 50th anniversary this year. And I, I spoke with Stan this week and I haven't gotten the ad copy yet, but I really wanted to talk a, a little bit about it. Um, it's really a full circle thing for me. The first real instrument mandolin wise that I ever got, I bought from Elderly Instruments and I used to go there uh, as often as I could. It was about an hour and a half away. And, you know, I had young kids, so I couldn't go there as much as I wanted to. But you could go there on weekends and there were jam sessions taking place and just great players. There's there's videos of Billy Strings and his dad before Billy Strings was, you know, huge and popular playing there. And I, yeah, I'm really, really proud to have Elderly Instruments as a sponsor. So thank you so much to Stan and everybody at Elderly. And uh, welcome. Welcome to the Mandolins and Beer podcast. And I'm, I'm really proud of the, all the sponsors that that sponsor this podcast. Obviously, it means a lot to me, uh, keeps this podcast running. But it's also all companies that uh, are are great and they're mandolin based. You know, I get emails from 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 companies that want to promote on the website that you hear on maybe some other podcasts. But I don't want to have them on there. I, I want to have sponsors that have something to do with the people who listen to this podcast and, and the mandolin. So um, with that said, Peghead Nation, Asian streaming video courses and mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass. You'll learn bluegrass, old time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in Roots Music. Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Fibish, and Chad Manning. Mike Compton, a guest next week. Brand new album coming out. Really, really good. Um, everything from beginner to advanced, they have it all. Uh, they have the high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. And best of all, you get your first month for free. Let's go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code MANDOLINBEER at checkout. That's all one word. 
Northfield Mandolins, let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com. Download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. Adrian also used to work at Elderly Instruments. Crazy. Full circle. Pava Mandolins, dedicated to building for the impassioned player. Pava Mandolins, built in Austin, Texas. And Roger Simonoff. Roger gets a shout out here in the in this episode. Straight up strings. Again, I can't possibly tell you all the science behind it. However, if you go to straightupstrings.com, you can check out all the information there. More importantly... And again, I mean, great players like C.J. Lewandowski and Tristan Scroggins use those strings. I think that says a lot there. You can get a set for $9.85. You can get a six-pack for $51.95 and save yourself some money. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for the Straight Up Strings newsletter. Great information sent to your email box monthly. Straight Up Strings, every note of every chord. All right, let's get into this episode with Tony Williamson. Great talk with Tony. And uh, he's a great mandolin player, so the music you hear right now is from Tony Williamson. Have a fantastic week. Cheers, everybody. It is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast Tony Williamson. Tony, how are you? Hi, Daniel. I'm doing great. Uh, good morning to you, and good morning to all those out in podcast land. Yeah, good morning to you, too. And the perfect, perfect example of why I was calling you today, when I, the minute we get on the phone, you were scanning an article into PDF form about Lloyd Lore. <laughs> from, an, an, from an the- article I found in the Los Angeles Times uh, in June of 1923. Wow. And uh, and it's advertising a concert by the greatest, it quote the greatest mandola player of all time, Lloyd Lore. That is wild. <laughs> what's the uh, what's the date on that? Uh, June twenty fourth. Oh, I'm sorry, it's nineteen twenty one. Oh, okay. This is pre. With this is while the uh, F five was just still a, uh, a, a an idea in his head. 21 yeah june of 21 it was a year later that the first f5 appeared which will this june june 1st of this year will be the 100th anniversary of the gibson f5 mandolin wow wow that's that's amazing it is it is so so it was in in 21 it was undoubtedly already in the at least in the schematic phase um and Lloyd Lohr uh, in this article is is advertised as a mandola player. Uh, a lot of people don't know this, but uh, it, the the June first, nineteen twenty two Gibson F five is the earliest signature date known on an F five. But very soon after that came the second Lloyd Lohr signed instrument, which was the what they called the mandola viola mandolin <laughs> <laughs> it was basically a 10 string 10 string instrument with a snakehead peg head like like the the, the lore era a models were uh, on a mandola body so he had uh, uh the 10 strings there so he could play mandolin parts and mandola parts and this um 
this was was evidently the, uh, some his, his he was early on known as a mandola player, which is really kind of odd, you know, because uh, everybody talks about mandolins, and and then you know the mandocello is pretty awesome too, and the octave mandolin, but you don't get a lot of uh, love for the mandola. Yeah, you know, it's sort of like in the violin world, you know, they the old joke: how do you keep your violin from being stolen? You keep it in a mandola case. <laughs> oh, but <man>. anyway, anyway, <laughs> but uh, but uh, Lloyd Lure was known as a mandola, mandola player, and unfortunately, we don't have any recordings of his actual playing. We we and all his music. It's my understanding according to my good friend and colleague Roger Semenoff, that uh, there was quite a bit of music by him and arrangements by him that was destroyed by his uh, stepchildren uh, when they were cleaning out the house after uh, uh, Laura's widow passed away. So we don't have a lot of idea about uh, what kind of music he played. There there are a few... Um, there are a few. Uh, uh, in fact, I have one here. Uh, 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 guides on how to play. In other words, uh, what do you call it? The everybody gets on the the the, the book list that teach you how to play. It's, oh yeah, uh, instruction. Like instruction yeah, instructional book. Yeah, yeah. There, there's instruction manuals by Lloyd Lord that are excellent. In fact, I have an original right here, and uh, so you get kind of a sense of where he's going, and that's why I'm. So far down, you know, you like I, I said when we first uh, said hi this morning, I am so far down the rabbit hole on this stuff that the word nerd doesn't even be strong <laughs> enough for me anymore. I, I uh, yeah, I, I'm sitting here trying to get an idea of the repertoire that he would have played, and that's why I'm I'm researching all these old newspaper articles of concerts. So uh, that's. Uh, that's 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 what I was doing this morning when we when we first connected. <laughs> oh, that's so fun! It's so the, one of the reasons why I really wanted to talk to you. Um, well, multiple reasons, really. I mean, one, you're a great player in your own right. Um, you know, I think the first video I ever saw of you was probably researching Thiele because he was the first person that I'd kind of I kind of came across the mandolin in a weird way, and Thiele was kind of the guy that did that. And there's you know great Merlefest videos of uh, the Mando jams that you kind of had up there, which is uh, which are just just awesome to watch. Um, you know, just a bunch of great players, yourself included, in there. Uh, and, and, and then you're just an expert on this. And, you know, so many times during this podcast, lore talk comes up, uh, be it the, the man himself or the instrument. And I think it'd be really cool to dig, you know, a little bit deeper into that for people who might not be just, you know, too familiar with, um, you know, at, at, with the, the, the man and the instrument itself and why it's kind of come to where it is and, and all that good stuff. So. Yeah, I, I, I really appreciate that. And you mentioned Merlefest. I just, uh. I, I just finalized my contract for again this year. We're going to do the Mand Mandomania once again, and my good pal Sam Bush is uh, will be uh, co-producing that with me, and we're inviting some exciting young players to uh, join us as well as some old heroes. So it, it's it, it and there's no format. There's it's like we get there 15 minutes ahead of time, say howdy, shake hands, have a big hug. 
and then get on stage and see what happens. So <laughs> <laughs> this is this is not business as usual. Oh, uh, and and people should go to YouTube and just type that. There's a there's there's a few clips of that that out there, and it's just great, man, because you can see. I mean, one of the reasons why I think we all play this instrument is the joy it brings us. And it's really cool to see people who play the instrument for a living and the joy that it brings them, you know, at, with all these amazing players. It's it's you know, it's just amazing to see. Yeah. So the, the your question about the F5 uh, uh, and, 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 and that's that's sort of our jumping off place here, I, I think, is that. Lore means two things. There was a man, and then there's a mandolin. And uh, the mandolin, we we the the F five, we consider the lore because his signature was in the the ones that we saw early on. That uh, the the one that Bill Monroe had was was really the uh, instrument that sparked the whole lore lore fever. And uh, the reason for that is that. Just a brief history glimpse of uh, the late teens. Uh, things had changed drastically from the Mando rave, the, the the rage that was going through this country around the turn of that century. Uh, the mandolin was so popular. But a couple of things happened in 1917 and 18. There was the uh, pandemic. That sound familiar? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, there was a, a, a influenza pandemic, and at the time, flu was pretty seriously. It carried a death sentence in a lot of cases. Um, there was also World War One, and uh, and and then another biggie. And I hate to even say this word, prohibition. Nineteen <laughs> nineteen, they uh, they closed down the bars. So by by the time we're talking about the uh, the world had had sort of just gone nuts, the U.S. especially, because here we are, the pandemic finally over, the war is over, and we're ready to party, man. <laughs> so and the government has shut down all the bars. So what do we do? We go to a place where you knock on the door and a little little uh, transit opens and uh, you give a secret word and you go in and there's there's <laughs> there you got a, a martini and a band playing this raucous music and people young ladies cutting their hair short and having short skirts and dancing this incredible dance and gentlemen in in nice uh, nice tuxedos doing the dance too and uh, the the Dixieland is roaring and there's the banjo playing the rhythm and where did the little mandolin fit into all that so Lloyd Lore kind of had the idea and he pitched this to Gibson that what we really needed was a better mandolin, one that could stand up to the raucous sound of the new music. And uh, and that's why they adopted uh, the, 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 the strategy of using violin techniques, F-hole, archtop, get more sound, more projection, more, uh, more crispness in the upper end, which uh, the earlier mandolins just did not have. And that upper end is really where you're going to live in a band that has a, a string bass, a piano, and a trombone, and a cornet. So uh, the, the F5 was born sometime between 1919 and 1922. I really think it took that long to really get it together. 
Um, some other things were happening at Gibson that made this all possible. The uh, the uh, the adjustable truss rod was patented in 1920. The uh, adjustable bridge first came out. Uh, the patent was filed for in May of 20, but it wasn't granted until January of 21. But uh, those two things really, really gave them a leg up on intonation and action. So, so here we have a better mandolin, a greater mandolin, one that could really project, one that a virtuoso could play. You know, you could play the Bach and you could play the Paganini Caprices on this thing because it had a neck that you could move around on and also the, the upper end to be able to play these things. And so what happened? Uh, they, didn't, they didn't even dent the Dixieland craze. And, you know, maybe the fact that Prohibition kept everybody out in the bars instead of in the parlors where they used to enjoy mandolin music had a big factor in that. Yeah, because mandolin was kind of like a, a, a bit of a classical uh, in, in orchestra sort of thing too, right? During that craze, was that part of the big the big allure? Was it more of like a, uh, I want to say upper class, but it wasn't, you know, like raucous bar music at the time? Well, yeah, yeah, the, the, the previous era, the, 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 it was, and that's sort of what I'm trying to get a handle on. I mean, we sort of have a, a concept that they were playing classical music, but I, I, I think they were mixing classical music with their arrangements of popular music, too, to make, uh, make the concert more palatable. So it wasn't like going to the opera or going to the Met. Uh, to hear the, uh, the 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 orchestra, there 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 were things going on there that uh, were on more uh, entertainment based for the common man. So so I think I think uh, I think that was what those concerts were like, uh, uh, the mandolin concerts. For for one thing too, that uh, the the classical, uh, it's a whole nother subject, but classical. Uh, the the classical music of the uh, the the 19th and early 20th century really looked down on the mandolin, even though uh, you know in in the 18th century Beethoven and and Mozart both had used mandolin in in, in wonderful compositions. Uh, by the 19th century, it was sort of like, nah, that's a folk instrument. That's a guy out on the street who can't read music playing. So uh, we don't want him in our club. And and this uh, this mandolin boom that started about 1880 and ran through about 1917 here in the U.S. was kind of a reaction to that. But 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 anyway, the but that was the old mandolin, the one with the round hole and the one with the really beautiful, pleasant, round, warm bottom end and uh, and, and 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 a parlor-oriented mandolin and guitar kind of world, you know. And and so what I think Gibson and and Lore specifically was trying to do was to open up that so the mandolin could be could could live in both worlds. It could be on the classical stage, so it could you know this an instrument that you could play the Bach and the Paganini. And you know ironically, it took another century before. Uh, people really <laughs> played that, you know, with, with Chris Thiele and Mike Marshall. Right. And it, that's, that's not completely true because we got guys like uh, Dave Apollon and Joviali.
Uh, you know, the, some of those great players that absolutely could have played that kind of music, but chose rather to be entertainers and play ethnic music uh, or music associated with other cultures. But, uh, uh, but, but anyway, so here's Lore, here's Gibson, here's the new design. And, and sure enough, a hundred years ago, they came out with the first one. And then in the next few months, they put it into production. And by the end of that year, 1922, they had all a handful of these instruments, which uh, got sent out to some of the top uh, player teacher uh, sellers, which was the Gibson method at the time. There were guys all over the country that had that taught music that organized mandolin orchestras and that sold Gibson instruments to their students and orchestra players. Um, guys like uh, William Griffith in Atlanta, uh, Walter K. Bauer up in Hartford. There were, you know, and this was all over the world. They had people in uh, Los Angeles. They had a, uh, an orchestra in China, um, the, Europe, uh, Canada. Uh, so they started uh, Herman von Bernowitz in uh, in D.C. Um, I mentioned Herman and Walter because I spent time with both of these wonderful gentlemen uh, in their elderhood and and got a lot of stories about these times. And uh, and so the F5 was embraced by some and rejected by others. What was the what was the price point compared to the oval hole or even some of like the uh, like like the banjos and things like that that were being played in bars at that point? Were they was it comparable or was it a little bit more expensive? Yeah, the 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 F5 mandolin was the most expensive mandolin that had ever been offered for sale. Uh, your your price was two hundred and fifty dollars and twenty five dollars for the case. That's the that's the price in the nineteen twenty three catalog in. Um, the, the next available mandolin was, uh, the F4 at $200, which was still pretty pricey. Um, consider, uh, a Model T could be had for about that same money. Wow. Um, you know, the, the average, uh, 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 income for, a, you know, a, a, a working man would have, that would have been a, a year's salary. So no, it was not cheap. A very good, very good question how did that compare to the cost of banjos? Well, in 1923 or 24, it was more expensive, but the banjo thing took off so much so that the ornate and audacious designs that uh, that uh, Paramount, uh, Bacon and Day, uh, and later Gibson came up with in the 30s uh, shot banjo prices up to ridiculous uh, 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 heights. So, um, but that was yet to come. And in 1923, this was, other than a Cremona violin, this was the most expensive instrument you could buy. Mm -hmm. Okay. Interesting. And the, the sound was, the thing of it is, the sound appealed to guys like Dave Apollon because, you know, he could stand out in front of the uh, huge orchestra and be heard. You know, the, those high notes just rang out so wonderfully. So there were a lot of guys who uh, embraced the F5 for playing solo in or concerto with orchestra. On the other hand, they were expensive. So in a lot of these mandolin orchestra settings, 
and, and I get this from the interviews I've done with some of the some of the elders that uh, I was able to get to in the 70s that were still with us. And uh, it, it's like if if someone had a good job, maybe a lawyer, or a doctor might have an F5 Manlin, you know, because they also had a brand spanking new Model A by that time. And uh, they showed up at the orchestra and, and they weren't the best players. Yet they were louder than everybody else in their set. <laughs> so uh, Herman von Bernowitz especially didn't like the F5 for that very reason. <laughs> and uh, and and uh, um, and the, the 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 imbalance of the sound in the orchestra was was very 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 puzzling for uh, for a lot of these folks. And you have to think about this in terms of who these people were. And there were some orchestras that were brilliant. Some of the ones like uh, guys like Walter K. Bauer had, I'm sure, were well rehearsed. And when they hit the stage, they really had it going on. Others were, you know, people who like to gather at the end of a work week and and hang out and, and try to play music together. I mean, we, we all know that. And to, to illustrate this, <clears throat> I did a concert with uh, with uh, the uh, Tacoma Mandoliers with uh, Herman von Bernowitz um, uh, conducting. This was uh, probably somewhere in the mid '70s in uh, Washington D.C. And uh, Herman was in his 90s; he was almost deaf. The orchestra, their their instruments were poorly set up bridges in the wrong place old strings out of tune and um, and they they played they 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 did their their absolute best to get through the piece and herman continu- continued to conduct after everybody else had stopped playing and it, it was a disaster <laughs> and but I was still just to be there with these people, all in their 80s and 90s, and they were part of the scene when Lloyd Lore was there. So I invited a few of the the, the top ones, uh, you know, a few, few of the front row folks that uh, I had befriended to dinner at an Italian restaurant, which, you know, you show a mandolin player in an Italian restaurant with a nice bottle of Chianti, you know, you're, <laughs> you, you've got you, you've got it. So we went to this restaurant and uh, – Sure enough, we had the pasta and we had the Chianti and we're all just having a great time. And I turned around, turned over to uh, the gentleman sitting beside me, an elderly man in the 90s that had played like second second row mandolin. And, and I said, I bet you guys were just amazing back in the day. And he looked at me and he says, no, Sonny, we were always terrible. <laughs> <laughs> that's great (laughs) yeah so yeah so you know mandolin players just want to have fun yeah for sure now how did um how did lloyd lore uh find his way to gibson well that's an interesting question there um lore was early on a avid gibson uh, uh uh proponent because it was the best mandolin that you could find. I mean, even in the teens, he played uh, Gibson Mandolas, and and then there's the famous photograph of him playing an Orville Gibson uh, style mandolin in the teens, and then uh, then he had an F4 for a while. So prior to the F5, he was already playing Gibsons, 
um, uh, 1919 found him in New York, I believe. I mean, I need to probably research this to really uh, uh, confirm this, but uh, I, he was involved with the Dirtsy brothers from Palermo, Sicily, who invented the Dirtsy tone producer, which is a, a secondary soundboard that fits inside the instrument. Uh, the idea is that it would uh, increase the frequencies, especially in the high end, and uh, and Lore was a big proponent of that, and he brought that and his uh, his his brilliance for inventing. I mean, whatever you say about Lloyd Lore, and there's a lot of Lloyd Lore detractors these days who who point out, and rightfully so, that there were a lot of other people at Gibson that contributed to this the, to this wonderful mandolin. Uh, but Lloyd Lore was a designer and an inventor. I've got 38 different patents that he filed for uh, during the years of the 1920s and 30s. So, uh, so the 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 Vertsi, uh interested him, uh, and when he went to Gibson in 1919, that's one of the things he brought with him. And they so they hired him as acoustic engineer because of his prominence as an inventor, an acoustic specialist, and a performer, I think. I think it'd be very much like, uh, you know, uh, getting, uh, you, you know, over the years we've had various companies that have had uh, uh, prominent musicians endorse their instrument and come out with a Bill Monroe model or a, a dog model. Uh, so I, I think that was part of it, too. It's interesting because, you know, I mean, a lot of people, I mean, I've played them with and without. I think it's really an interesting tone that it produces with it in there. But, you know, a lot of people do also seem to get them removed if they if they uh, find a lore they love that has it in there. And and it seems a lot of people do tend to remove them. But there are a few people who always. keep them in, right? Oh, yeah, always on, huh? Back in the day, mm -hmm. always. Wow. We always took them out because Bill Monroe didn't have one. <laughs> and And here's the other thing about it is, you know, I've done a lot of experiments with this, and it is, it is remarkable what it does to the projection of an instrument, and I and I really find that more obvious than the than the increase in frequencies. I think uh, when you stand out, you stand ten or twelve feet away from a Vierzi mandolin, or hear it in a concert hall with uh with no amplification you know a really good old old style concert hall there's very few left but uh it's amazing how it throws the sound back to the back row but it throws it so well forward that you can't really hear it sitting behind it and i think that's why the bluegrass players especially don't like them because if you're in a jam session with a, a herringbone martin and a flathead gibson banjo uh you can't hear yourself yeah gave me and, nightmare uh, shutters just thinking it <laughs> right 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 you know it's uh it's like we, we like bluegrass we like to hear ourselves play you know that's what mandolin's all about you know and you get in a rawhide you you want to you want that thing you know rumbling in your belly you know so uh so you jerk out the vertsy and there it is you you got it you got it you got the rumble back so did did bills have the Verzi, and it was re he removed it, or did was it removed when he when he got it? I never had it. Never had it. Gotcha. Never had it. Never, never did. And and they were pretty rare at you know in the early part of uh, of uh, the lore era. Um, they the uh, I would say that 
1923, I would say only about 10%, maybe 15%. And this is off the top of my head. I don't have real data here. But I'd say, you know, it's less than 20% that had Veritzes. And in 1924, I would say that less than 20% didn't have Veritzes. Huh. So it, uh, it really – and I, I think another aspect of that was the fact that uh, it does cut down volume. I mean, just the, 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 the simple math of the thing is that uh, uh, you're adding extra wood and dampening that top. So there, there is a volume issue there, and I think some of the orchestra leaders like Herman – like the idea of putting some in there that would scale back the volume just a little bit and uh, and blend it in with some of the other instruments in the orchestra. So I, I, I don't know, but it, it was it was used a lot more and it probably also because of Gibson's uh, uh, advertisement about it. The Cadenza magazine, the Crescendo magazine and the Gibson catalog all really touted the Virtsy and, uh, you know, and at 15 bucks a pop, <laughs> rightfully so. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> what were the amount of mandolins that uh, were produced by Lore in his tenure there? Because it's a, it a short tenure. Yeah, uh, he went with Gibson in 1919, uh, signed on as acoustic engineer. He uh, produced the first F5, or the factory produced the first F5 in June of 22. And Lore was gone by January of 25. So it was a short tenure. How many mandolins did they produce? We have no way of really knowing that. We, we do know what is, you know, thanks to guys like uh, Daryl Wolf and uh, Dan Beamborn, uh, we have really good calculations of what we have, what we know, what instruments have been reported in our extant. <clears throat> And uh, and you consider that there's you know there's there's over 200 mandolins, F5s that I think are on that uh, mandolin archive. How many of them are lores? I don't have off the top of my head. I do know that <clears throat> the two biggest days of lores signature, the 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 days I can I call the hand cramp days, uh, uh, were February 18th of 1924 when there were, I think, somewhere in the neighborhood of 40, 42 mandolins signed that day. And then, uh, then the uh, March 31st of 1924, there were fewer mandolins, but there were also mandocellos, mandolas uh, signs. So there were almost 60 instruments that, uh, that got signatures that day. So just those two days would be 100 instruments. Wow. So, uh, so they were cranking them out. And yes, it wasn't just lore. I mean, this is the misconception. I mean, originally, so when I was a kid, you imagine this nine-year-old kid uh, seeing Bill Monroe the first time and, 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 and moving very rapidly to the place of stalking the man. <laughs> and, 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 and by the time I was 12, uh, he invited me backstage and, uh, and stuck this mandolin in my hands, and uh, and I played for him, and uh, and I looked inside, and I looked at the peghead. Well, the peghead, it just had, it, it didn't have anything in it, it except a, a one three-letter word that started with a T. And it looked a lot to me like tree, and then and then I looked inside and I saw Lloyd Lore, 
So at the time, I had no idea that that was a Gibson mantle. And and it, it's hard for us to really believe this now, but at the time, it really there really wasn't a lot of information about this kind of thing. So being a young lad who loved to trade bird dogs and pocket knives and uh, and now mandolins, I went around the country asking for a tree brand mandolin. <laughs> I had never found one, yeah. <laughs> but, the, but but the word Lloyd Lore stuck in my mind, and finally, finally at the age of fifteen, I'm at Carlton Haney's first bluegrass festival here in North Carolina, the uh, the famous Camp Springs Bluegrass Festival that had everybody: Bill Monroe, Stanley Brothers, Jimmy Martin, I mean Osborne Brothers, everybody was there, and there was a man from uh, Pittsburgh that was there with a met with a Lloyd Lord Mandlin for sale. And I got to see it. And that was the first one other than Bill's I'd ever seen. And sure enough, it said Lloyd Lord in there and it sounded just amazing. Bob Artist was his name. We later became good friends. But at the time, I all I knew was he had a Lloyd Lord Mandlin for sale. So I went running back down to our family campsite. You know, the whole family used to go to these festivals. And my dad was there pitching our tent. And I run up to my dad. And I say, Pappy, Pappy, there's a man up on the hill. He's got a Lloyd Lord Mandolin, and he's going to sell it to us for only $1,000. Can we get it? <laughs> and my old, my old Pappy, this is 1969. My old Pappy, he, he looks at me. He shoots out a big old water tobacco juice and says, Son, I believe if I was going to spend that much money for a mandolin, I'd go ahead and get a Gibson. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's great! <laughs> I, I, I didn't talk back to my pappy. I, I just kind of, just kind of nodded and accepted it, and uh, and and it was uh, several years later when I got my first uh, Lloyd Lore F five, the Gibson mandolin. Yeah, what uh, what year did you get it in? Okay, this is nineteen seventy seven. Uh, I uh, uh, I graduated from college and. Uh, was accepted to grad school at Northwestern to study modern literature. Oh yeah, they they wouldn't let me be a music major in college at UNC because my instrument was mandolin, and uh, and really and you know they they blocked me from the music department because I told them I played mandolin and they laughed at me, and and just a year ago or so I had an inquiry from the folklore department at UNC offered me a position as adjunct professor professor to teach bluegrass mandolin and oh, wow. I was just you know I was just like boy man times have changed but I, <laughs> I, 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 I told him I couldn't take the cut and pay <laughs> <laughs> but but anyway uh <laughs> oh dear uh, uh so 77 I blew off grad school to go play in the bluegrass alliance which uh was a band that uh whose alumni included Sam Bush, Tony Rice, Vince Gill, the, you know, the list just goes on and on of the great players who'd played in that band. And so I pulled up stakes and moved out there. I had a, had an F4 that had been converted to F5 that I had pretty much decided that I couldn't afford a Lloyd Lore anyway. So this mandolin would be my mandolin from now on. And it was loud. Everybody called it the cannon cause it was loud. And, uh, I, I, this is a long story. I'm going to try to cut it a little short. Yeah, no worries. Uh, yeah, I, I lived in a place called 
that they now call the Bluegrass Hotel. It was a, it was a big, uh, well, a dilapidated old Victorian mansion that this uh, professor from the, the college uh, from U of L, uh, Harry Bickle, owned, and it was a, it was the, uh, uh, the lodging house for all of us when we played in the Alliance. Uh, you know, Vince and Sam and everybody stayed there. And on any given night, you would have any band that was playing in town from Bill Monroe's Bluegrass Boys to Ralph Stanley's Boys to anybody who came to town, they came and stayed with us and crashed and jammed all night. And and that was the scene we had. And in the basement was a workshop. And there, Harry Sparks, the famous luthier who worked on everybody's instruments and made incredible banjos and he himself had the most amazing d45 martin of all time had his workshop and i had come in from off the road it was thanksgiving day it was my first thanksgiving away from home um i had uh, been on the road for six weeks i really wanted to kill everybody in the band uh <laughs> And I, I just fell into a, uh, I was sick. I was sick as a dog. I had the flu. I was burning up with fever. I just crawled up to my room. I didn't want to jam. I didn't want to hang out. I just crawled in there and pulled the covers over my head and just resigned myself that this was it. I was going to die. Well, Sparks and Bickle were both worried that I was going to die. And Sparks had this mandolin in there for that he was going to refret for a good friend named bill lawari that uh, i didn't meet till much later and he came uh he had finished the frets i didn't know any of this all i knew was i was laying in the bed burned up in fever and i heard the door to my room open and i heard steps across the room something was placed in the bed beside me and then i heard steps and then i heard the door close and that's all i rose up I looked and it was a rectangular case that had this funny smell to it. And I popped the latches and inside there it was, December 1st, 1924, Lloyd Laura Mandolin. And I pulled it out and I strummed the G chord. My fever broke immediately. <laughs> I started playing. I, I, I got up, I, 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 I just couldn't stop playing it. And for a solid week, I played that mandolin. I went, I, I was almost immediately cured of my fever in fact pandemic friends this is what you need <laughs> <laughs> and I, re I recorded with that mandolin i just fell so in love with it and then a week was up and bill lawari came back to get his mandolin and he had to pry it out of my fingers i i i i had finally understood the one truth that we all need to arrive at and that is that chainsaws are loud volume just ain't everything it's tone 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 that's that's what it is and that mandolin had tone like i had never heard before so it was less than a week later before sparks hooked me up with the mandolin that i still i i, I still had it in my hands when you called this morning it's uh you know yeah, yeah, a half a century later, Lloyd and I are still happily together. You know, the the wives and girlfriends have come and gone, but I've got <laughs> one man. <laughs> man, that's a beautiful story. Yeah, so that 
that was my first lore. And, uh, and since then I became kind of a lore magnet. I mean, <clears throat> I don't know. It's a, it was an unusual energy, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That, uh, that I took on and, and suddenly, you know, I was going to all my shows and people were coming up backstage and say, well, I got one of them ones. And then, you know, but, but, you know, I had enough sense to write their name down, get their phone number. And then, then further on, you know, I, I leave Oklahoma and head to California. And the guy says, boy, I'd love to have a mandolin like that. Says, well, as a matter of fact, there's a guy in, in Oklahoma, blah, blah, blah. And the next thing you know, you know, a little UPS. And uh, and I've got a business going that, <clears throat> you know, I tell people, you know, I uh, I buy and sell mandolins so I can afford to play one. <laughs> oh, wow. that That's so amazing. What a... What a what a crazy way the world works, huh? You know, to, yeah. You, you yep. find yourself having the mandolin of your dreams, and suddenly everybody's, you know, you, you become this person who you're the guy to go. Oh, well, where do I get one of those? Or I want to sell mine. Wow. But but there's there's something else too. I want to just put in here is that there is a learning curve in learning how to play one of these instruments. It's not uh, just apparent when you first pick it up to a lot of people there there is a way to extract that tone and you have to listen to the mandolin you have to let the mandolin teach you rather than you try to teach it the i sold three lords last year and all three at this point have new fingerboards with radius frets and blah 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 that these people are trying to somehow achieve what they already their preconceived notions of what that mandolin could should be rather than giving it time to teach them what it wants to teach them. And that's what I tell people that, especially the ones who say, ah, I played a Lloyd Laureate, wasn't it? Yeah, I wasn't no big dude, whoop, you know, uh, my, my guts mo over here, take that any day. You know, I say, give it a chance. Give the mandolin a chance to teach you something. Sure. Well, I'd imagine, too, some of those, I would think, um, you know, if you go to play one that's that's not been played, you know, you got to play these things to, to get – them to open up and and build that tone and if it's been sitting under a bed for who knows how many years and you go and strum it and it's got you know the same strings on it or you know Uh, absolutely yeah and there's a little crack in the bridge saddle or the bridge is in the wrong place or the neck joint has come loose or or even you know one of the one of the tone bars is uh, unglued uh, uh, the tailpiece, you know, all the, you know, the time and time again, I see the tailpiece screw that's uh, kind of wallowed out and is not tight. Huge effect on the sound. Oh, and another thing is the truss rod nut. Time and time again, I have mandolins come in that people say it just doesn't have any tone, and I take off the truss rod cover and the nut is loose. You know, over the years, the wood has shrunk, but the metal hasn't. I uh, hit a little Teflon lube on that nut and tighten it up, and suddenly, Whoa! You know, <laughs> right. one one little turn. It, 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 it's just incredible, and uh, th- there's so much lack of understanding around these instruments uh, that it kind of you know I just kind of have a big sigh sometimes to think you know people just 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 take some time to understand. Yeah, how many lures do you think you've played? Um, any idea? For some reason, I I envision you with a little notebook, uh, writing down the yep. numbers and the. <laughs> and the I, I do. Yeah. Yeah. Now, well, for me, it's more like a a file folder that's about three inches thick, full of scraps of paper. <laughs> I, I wish it were a notebook, and thank thank goodness uh, the Mandolin Archive 
has that for us now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Those guys have done a great job. Uh, uh, Daryl Wolf started this way back as did I, you know, I, I started writing down the mandolins I've seen. I found my, uh, my first page from 1979 the other day and I already had, uh, oh gosh, I think there's probably about 30 mandolins on there that I had, that I had seen him play even back then. So, uh, uh, yeah, at this point, I mean, with Mandolin Central, it's just been amazing. I just uh, have uh, been fortunate enough to have, uh, you know, er every year for the last uh, 10 or 12 years, I've had at least three or four Mandolins come through here, uh, lores or ferns. And uh, it's, uh, you, you know, we're, we're, in, in, we're in a renaissance of, of this of, of this instrument. I mean, uh, we're, we're not only living at a time where a lot of really great makers are producing wonderful instruments, um, but we're also living in a time when a lot of these instruments are coming back into circulation again because, yeah, because of the, 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 the time, the age, the time of man. You know, a lot of us who uh, who uh, uh, bought these instruments in the 60s and 70s have arrived at a point of elderhood now. And for various reasons, uh, people are uh, letting these mandolins go on to new homes, which I work very hard to make that happen in the best way possible. And and, and it, 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 in a way, it's kind of sad because, uh, you know, when, when, when a friend passes away that played his mandolin for all these years or or someone that has whatever debilitating condition that won't let him play anymore. And we, we, we have to accept the transition and move on and find a, find a good, uh, good home, a good person, a good steward so that that mandolin can then make another generation. Yeah. And there's some, see, um, you know, there's new ones popping up every now and again, you know, or new, new players, I should say, you know, like you say that of yep. that generation, uh, picking them up and, and, uh, uh, yeah, it's great. Oh, yeah. And they're yeah. and they've they've I mean, they're still expensive, but they're much more affordable than they were uh, 10 years ago, even, you know, when they were cracking almost a quarter of a million. A couple, I think it held a couple two hundred and twenty five thousand dollar ones at Carter at one point. <laughs> you know, well, I, that that was the going rate. Yeah, uh, right. Exactly. A couple left a couple of left my shop for uh, figures like that. And uh and, and 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 they were people who could afford it. So uh, you know, uh, one thing I've I've never sold an instrument to someone who couldn't afford it. I've never encouraged somebody to to hurt themselves to uh, to get a better instrument. You know, but at the same same time, I mean, my wife had a story the other day about a woman who started with uh, started collecting I don't know rare ink pens or something and wound up trading and then you know, eventually wound up with a million dollars just from trading and trading and trading. Oh, um, wow. and, and that's the way I did it. See, I, I come from farm people, factory workers. I, 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 I never, never had money, but I've always been mandolin rich because I've kept my eyes open and, uh, and been willing to, uh, to, to, to make trades and, uh, make things work out. But yeah, there's the, 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 the price, thing has really taken uh, a change, strange transition from uh, I think the year 2000 is when the the F5 Manlin hit a hundred thousand um, and that's the first time in history that it wasn't parallel 
to a really fine automobile. Like uh, I always used to say, how much is a Lloyd Lower Mandolin worth? About about the same as a new Cadillac. And I remember in 1990, you could buy a a, uh, um, a Coupe de Ville for uh, for twenty thousand, and there was a Lloyd Lower for twenty thousand. But but by uh, by the year 2000, the the mandolin was selling for more than the Cadillac, and I started wondering where this is going. And then by 2006, 2007, they were up to 200,000. And then some some really prime examples were hitting higher than that. It was a bubble. It became a market uh, independent of the commodity. But yes, the prices have gone down. But anytime something has become a commodity and the price goes down considerably, why that tells me it's time to buy. Yeah, right. So, <laughs> exactly. So yeah, I, I, I can't imagine it won't go back up. I mean, if we look at the Stradivarius violin, it w- went through uh, several peaks and uh, and valleys over the years. Once it became a commodity, and uh, and sure enough, it's still doing pretty strong. And there was the same sort of movement to try to debunk the old uh, Cremona mystique by getting a bunch of young players who to play high quality new instruments that they were very familiar with and then hand on the Stradivarius, which they'd never played before. And they couldn't get that kind of sound out of it. Duh. (laughs) Right. Right. I mean, I remember working at a music store, um, you know, back when I was boy, probably 20, 21 ish. And, and it was, it was interesting because I, that was something I had actually learned when like somebody would order like a really expensive instrument and the, the people there that worked there were pretty smart about it. And they were like, a lot of people don't realize when you get a really expensive instrument, it, it, you got to learn it. You, it. You're not just going to play it and it's going to sound amazing the minute you pick it up. It's very rare. You've got to, you've got to, it's, it's, it's got more qualities. It's more attuned to your fingers not being in the right place. It's, you know, you got to figure all that stuff out. Don't you know? You can't just expect it. And, you know, because people come in and they, you know, spend a good amount of money and they weren't necessarily always blown away. But boy, you saw them a year later and they were like, whoo. Exactly. <laughs> you know? Exactly. I, 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 I absolutely have had that conversation with a lot of great players. Um, uh, Chris Thiele, for example. I mean, it was in the beginning. He, he was so tuned into his dude, uh, you know, his, his dude in Boston that uh, that it took it took a little there was a learning curve there. And, uh, you know, time and time again, I get this and great players, but you give them enough time and they're bright and they're listening and then, you know, they blossom. And there you go. I mean, and another thing, too, that I've really noticed over the years is that. Th- that works both ways. It's a symbiotic relationship. The mandolin actually takes on qualities of the player, uh, of what the player puts into it. The player takes on qualities of the mandolin, and the mandolin takes on qualities of the player. I, I truly believe that. Like Mike Marshall's mandolin, it-, it didn't sound like that when he got it. I mean, I, I knew the yeah, I knew the mandolin before he got it, and. Uh, over the years, that mandolin has just taken on that warm, chocolatey thing that, which is the way Mike plays, you know, and uh, and the same is true with Sam Bush. What a great example that is! That oh, old house. Yeah. yeah, I mean, old house just you know is you, you can't describe old house or Sam Bush without using the word badass. I mean, <laughs> exactly. 
I'm sorry. <laughs> so, uh, uh, and you know, same with dog and crusher and, uh, and, you know, and then Chris has got, I don't know if Chris has a nickname or not. I, I think he just goes by the number, but, uh, uh, uh but, but, but it's the same thing. The mandolin takes on the qualities of the player and the player takes on qualities of a mandolin. And that, that's something you don't get with just with an average factory made instrument. Now, uh, this is probably a tough question, I'm sure, to answer, but 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 I have to ask, is there one out there that you've played where you were just like, this is the best sounding mandolin I've ever played in my life? Oh, there's <clears throat> there's a bunch of them. <laughs> <laughs> I bet, I bet. And and so I've got mine. I've got the one I uh, that I got there while I was with the Bluegrass Alliance uh, in 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 77 and i've played that mandolin every day since day one and uh we've been through a lot together i won't get into all that but uh you know that mandolin's been all over the world and i get in uh, instruments I, I you know i have to i have to say uh uh 75324 for example was one that came in that uh i'd gotten from aubrey haney and oh my god and and, and my wife laughs at this because every once in a while I get that mandolin in and I go back to old Lloyd number one, right? <laughs> right. And say, yeah, am I, am I, is it time? Is it time? Is it time for me to move on? And and then I, I, I play that. Then I get out Lloyd number one and then, yeah, yeah. And, and usually it's just, you know, one or two times going back and forth satisfies, but on some mandolins, it takes a bunch of time. It takes days for me to, you know, I walk around in such a dither, <laughs> you know, is it time to make the switch? Because, you know, despite what people think about me, I really only have one 1924 F5 that I consider mine. You know, the rest that also have a 23 and a 27, because you got to have all three. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> but, but those are mine. Th those are mine. And, and these others that come in, I want to repurpose. I'm not going to keep, you know, more instruments than I can play. It's, I, I mean, I know people call me a collector, but I'm not a collector in the sense that I want to have more things than I can play in a given time period. So, uh, so, you know, it's play me or trade me here at Mandolin Central. So, so yeah, seven, seven, five, three, two, four, seven, five, three, oh, nine was another wonderful instrument. Um, uh, gosh, I, I just go on and on about, you know, some really great ones. And I just got in one that uh, is signed the same day as the Bill Monroe mandolin. Oh, wow. That that uh, is starting to wake up and, and is starting to get kind of scary. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it was a great example when it first came in. Uh, the action was all wrong. Uh, it was it was coarse and bright where it should have been warm and and I just, you know, really started just just taking it completely down, trust rod, you know, do all my points of inquiry. Uh, it, it had the uh, tailpiece screw thing. It had all those little things that I looked for were wrong. And after some adjustment and some playing, it is starting to get pretty scary. So that's amazing, man. Yeah, that's great. I we definitely have to do a part two of these. I still have questions, um, but these stories are so good and. Uh, I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to do this today. This has been just so fun to talk about. And it's really cool to hear, I mean, again, like I, I, what I love about this podcast is the, the passion 
that people have for this instrument, you know, and it's just, I can hear it in every word you speak about it, you know? Oh, thanks. And maybe we'll do a, a volume two sometime. For sure. I would love to, man. Maybe I need to, I'm in South Carolina. I need to just come up to North Carolina. Let's do one in person. <laughs> yeah. Well, that'd be even better. You could have, uh, you could have music as well as, uh, That'd be awesome. And again, you're yeah. a great player too. So I'd love to talk even some more about your playing and, and stuff. People, so where people can find you is mandolincentral.com. It's got instruments for sale, your bio, links. It's got CDs, MP3s, videos, your contact information and all that great stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of YouTubes there. I, I, I try to do YouTubes uh, with instruments that come and go. And, and I find if you plug them into some decent speakers, they, they sound pretty good. And, and I have one more question for you here, and is that do you have a favorite beer? Oh, well, absolutely. A favorite beer, I would have to say a Guinness poured at a pub in Galway listening to the greatest fiddle player I've ever heard. Oh, who's that? The 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 guy that I that happened to be on stage that night. Oh. <laughs> And the, and the thing was, is in the pub right before that, it was the Guinness that was poured to the greatest fiddle player I'd ever heard until I went to the next pub. I love it. And the night went on. So, yeah, Guinness in Ireland. I, 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 I'm sorry, but here in the U.S., um, my wife makes an amber uh, ale with a hint of Tabasco. We grow our own Tabascos. And uh, and it's pretty real. Wow, pretty darn good. We'll, oh, I gotta try we'll that pop, too. You will pop one of those when you come to visit. Okay, fantastic, Tony. <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time. I look forward to meeting you in person. And um, yeah, have a great afternoon. Thank you, Daniel. I've enjoyed it very much. Same here. All right, there we go. Thank you so much to Tony. But I still have still have some questions left, so definitely look forward to a part two with Tony. I will make my way up there. Be sure to check out Tony's stuff. Be sure to go to mandolinsandbeer.com. I'll have links to Mandolin Central, also to the Mandolin Archive that he talks about. And, uh, yeah, you guys have yourselves a fantastic weekend. Cheers, everybody. <laughs>